grief transformed into joy. We've been looking at this glorious gospel for a couple years now, and um, I'm not quite tired of it yet. I think uh, uh, each Sunday, uh, each week as I prepare, I'm thankful for the many, many things that we find in God's word that we can glean wisdom from and Christ's likeness from. And so uh, he's faithful to work. And remember, he works through the enlightening work of his word. And let's be uh, faithful to trust him to do that this morning. If you found your place in John chapter 16, would you stand for the honor of reading God's word? Once again, we'll read these seven verses, John 16 through 22. Jesus is speaking to disciples and he says, A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing that he is telling us a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy away from you. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we thank you. What a glorious text. Lord, what a wonderful promise you give your children to turn our grief into joy. And Father, we, we've experienced grief. Lord, we experience it every day knowing that this world groans for the longing of redemption, recreation. Lord, we, we experience that because of this world that's marred by sin. We experience the effects of that. We experience grief particularly in this congregation over the last year or two or months and days just many who are in the midst of a terrible thing called grief and so to hear you promise your children that you will transform our grief into joy and it won't be a temporary worldly joy father that it will be a joy that no one can ever take away from us oh father our hearts Uh, stir up praise towards you for your goodness to us, your children. Lord, we do not deserve this. We, We deserve our grief. We deserve our grief to remain grief. We deserve our grief to be eternal grief. And yet we know that through the gospel, through what you were planning to do from the beginning of time, Lord, you transform our deepest sorrows into unattainable joy. What a wonderful, wonderful promise we have in your word. Would you help us see it for its truth, see it for its goodness, and mold our lives into Christ because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Well, 
Well, this morning as we continue through our series in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus, if you remember the context, is still talking with his disciples. He's still preparing them for the things to come because it's just a matter of hours now before he goes to the cross. And so just a few verses earlier from this passage, what we looked at last week, you remember Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be leaving them. And, and this caused their hearts to be filled with great sorrow, great grief. So Jesus, being the kind, merciful Savior that we know he is, proceeded uh, to minister to them, to explain to them how his going away was going to be to their advantage because by his going away, he was going to send his spirit. And that spirit, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, not only would comfort them, but the spirit, remember, would also guide them into all the truth, that he would give them, enlighten their eyes to understanding uh, that truth that was given. And not only that, but Jesus would then uh, tell them that the Spirit would be the one to inspire them to commit all of his words to writing, which is what we have in front of us known as the New Testament this morning. Now, in addition to those words of encouragement, Jesus now goes on in our passage this morning to inform them that even though he was going to be leaving them, it was only going to be for a short while. That he would also be returning to them in a short while. Jesus is telling them these things so that they might know what to expect in the days to come. Remember, he's giving them information so that they wouldn't be disheartened or despondent by the things that were about to come to pass. Remember the context here. It's just, it's just hours now before Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And, and having this information, Jesus is hoping that they might instead be comforted by knowing that Jesus would return again to them after just a little while. Well, this brings to what we will begin to look at as what I call the, the problem found in this passage. There are actually two problems here, and, um, but there's problems nonetheless. Um, I'll list the problems for you and then hopefully give you time to, to write them down as we go back to them. The problem here is twofold. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you for uh, about in a little while and then I'll return after a little while what did Jesus mean by that what's he referring to and then secondly a question we've probably asked over and over again as we study the gospel of John why didn't the disciples understand this and so we're gonna look first at what did Jesus mean what did he mean by this statement let's read verses 16 and 17 uh, together again a little while and you will no longer see me and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me and because I go to uh, the Father. What did Jesus mean by this statement? We actually, I think it's a pretty plain reading. I don't know if, if you do as well, but there are very many different views on this interpretation. But I believe Really, the, the simplest interpretation is probably the most popular view, that Jesus, in verse 16, is referring to his resurrection. Uh, lines up quite easily with the immediate context as Jesus has been talking about his death and, and, and departure. And along these same lines, the, the timing of the resurrection would certainly be an immediate source of comfort to the disciples, wouldn't it? Uh, which is the whole point of why Jesus was sharing this with them, to comfort them. Certainly they would be comforted knowing that Jesus 
would be risen from the dead, right? If Jesus was attempting to offer them comfort in light of his coming departure, it would be a tremendous comfort to know that he wouldn't be going away for very long. Of course, we know with the benefit of hindsight that Jesus did in return, in fact, after a little while, right? Just three days later to be exact. I mentioned that there were two problems. That's the first problem. And I, though some think he's referring to his returning by the Holy Spirit or his returning even to Judgment Day, I believe the simplest interpretation there is he's referring to his resurrection, which would be a comfort. But I think the second problem found within this text is why did the disciples not understand or could not understand what Jesus has said? Why couldn't they understand? It's pretty clear, right? If I... If I tell you that I'm going somewhere and then I'm going to return and I won't be gone long, that shouldn't be a a hazy thing for you to understand, and yet it is for the disciples. Well, it's important for us to, to, to get and understand this because it reminds us of what we talked about last week, and that is the great important role of the Holy Spirit in enlightening the hearts and minds of his people. See, No matter how often Jesus spoke of his coming death and his departure, the disciples didn't get it. How many times did Jesus mention this to them? Time and again, time and again. It's not until after these events take place that the disciples begin to understand their meaning and that's only because the Holy Spirit comes and gives them that understanding. Remember, think about this. The disciples, when you think about where they were and what was going on in that particular moment in time, you have to remember that they had a wrong view about the kingship of Jesus. Now, the disciples did believe that Jesus was their king, absolutely. Remember the hosannas they all cried out as he entered into Jerusalem on the donkey? That was rightly understood. It was a coronation ceremony and the king was coming into their city. The disciples were so convinced, in fact, that Jesus was their king and and that his kingdom had arrived that they left all they had in order to follow him. They were so sure that he was their long-awaited king that they even argued among themselves at who would be sitting at his right hand and who would be sitting at his left hand. Remember, When they were fighting, though, they were arguing over those positions, not in the spiritual realm, but in the physical realm. That's how they missed Jesus as their true king. They're looking at Jesus and saying, here is our king. And and now that we have our king, I want to be on his left-hand side and I want to be on his right-hand side. They, They thought that Jesus had come into this earth to set up an earthly kingdom. They thought that Jesus had come to bring every one of his enemies under his feet during his earthly reign on planet earth. They had no concept of Jesus going away from them, and they certainly couldn't grasp any idea that he would ever die. (laughs) That kind of talk just didn't compute with them at all. They couldn't understand it. Even after the resurrection, prior to Pentecost, in the book of Acts chapter 1, there were still some who were persuaded that Jesus would reign upon the earth. They said to the Lord, right before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, they said, Lord... Is it at this time you were restoring your kingdom to Israel? They still didn't get it. But Jesus knows that they didn't get it, that they couldn't understand it. So Jesus patiently continues to work with them and provide them with words of comfort. 
Now, if it were me, I don't know about you, but one of my pet peeves in life is having to repeat myself. I hate it. I don't, I don't know if you know this about me. I have sort of a word quota for the day. I know that might surprise you, okay? And when I hit that word quota, I'm done. I don't want to speak anymore, okay? Uh, and so for me to, to use up some words in my, my quota for the, the day to repeat myself seems like a giant waste of time. And that's, that's prideful, selfish, and sinful. But I hate to repeat myself. If you didn't get it the first time, oh well. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, but Jesus is patient. He's had to repeat himself over and over. I mean, picture this. Have you ever been in this way where you're trying to tell somebody something over and over and over again? And you're thinking, how could I be more clear? And they're still not getting it. See, Jesus doesn't lose his temper here. Jesus doesn't fly off the handle. Jesus is patient. He is being patient with his people. And he does this in the form of a prophecy. And that's the second thing we see in this passage. He gives them a prophecy in verses 19 through 20. And here's what he says in that prophecy. I know I'm going to get some comments about the fact that I have a word quota after the service, okay? So just hold them to yourself. I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, verse 19 says, Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Isn't it interesting that the disciples wanted to ask a question? They, they desired to ask Jesus, Jesus, what did you mean by this? But they didn't. They didn't ask. But here, Jesus being God himself, of course, knew what was on their hearts. He knew what they wanted to ask. And so our faithful shepherd sets out to even meet their unspoken needs. I love that. Church family, even when we fail to ask, our Savior graciously provides. No doubt, this is one of the, those real-life examples of how Jesus ministers continually, even to this day, to his people. As we're told in Romans, there are some things that trouble our hearts so much that we can only groan within ourselves and we sometimes can't even get into words even in our own prayers what we're feeling. But what do we find here about our Lord? What do we learn about the Lord Jesus Christ here? We learn that God even hears those prayers. He knows exactly what we're feeling and he's still here to meet our needs. Even before we call, he answers. That's how close our Savior is to us. Church, that's how much he loves you. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. He knows your every trouble and your every heartache. He knows what you need, even when you don't know what to ask or have the strength to ask. He's faithful. He's truly our good shepherd. Now, the prophecy we spoke about is found in verse 20. He tells them that when he goes away, they will weep and they will lament and they will mourn. And we can easily understand why, right? Just think about it. Any absence from our Savior's presence at all is cause for a troubled heart. We, we as God's people, don't like to be outside the presence of our gracious Savior. 
J.C. Ryle, as we've noted many times, commented on this in this way. He said, Christ's personal absence must needs be a sorrow to all true-hearted believers. The children of the bride chamber cannot but fast when the bridegroom is taken from them. Faith is not sight, hope is not certainty, reading and hearing are not the same as beholding, praying is not the same as speaking face to face. There is something, even in the hearts of the most eminent saints, that will never be fully satisfied as long as they are on earth and Christ is in heaven. So long as they dwell in a body of corruption and see through a glass darkly. So long as they behold creation groaning under the power of sin and all things not put under Christ, so long as their happiness and peace must needs be incomplete. This is what Paul meant when he said, we ourselves, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to which the redemption of our body, Romans 8, 23. There's something to that sorrow, isn't there? There is something to that sorrow. There's a good reason why we are told that to live is Christ and that to die is gain. There is a good reason why we're told to be absent from the Lord, to be present with Christ. You see, our hearts, if we belong to Jesus, they long to see Jesus. We long to see him face to face. And until we do, friends, it's right and it's proper for us to have that desire to cry out to say, Lord Jesus, please come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I want to see you. I want to be in your glorious presence. Friends, while Jesus was away from the disciples for those three days, we can't imagine how devastated they must have become. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say they shouldn't have, but what a tragedy for them. What a terrible loss they experienced. For them, it's even more difficult than it is for us. Friends, during those three days, they were not planning to see the Lord Jesus Christ ever again. What a heartbreaking thing. But here's the thing to keep in mind. While they didn't know Jesus had risen from the dead until that third day, church, they did have his word. And as much as we are certain that Jesus rose again on the third day, we too have his word right now that we will see him again one day. Whether that is through death or that's through his second coming, we will see Jesus with our own eyes one day soon. Friends, that is something to be joyful about. That is something to cause us to have tremendous joy. This brings us into the parable The parable, Jesus offers the disciples comfort and hope when he says this in verse 20, your grief will be turned into joy. He provides us now with a parable to illustrate what he means by this. And we get that parable in verses 21 through 22, where Jesus says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Now, I know we have a number of women in our congregation who have given birth to children, right? In fact, I have been in the room while my wife was in labor twice. And as I thought about those... um, Memories, I guess you can call them. Uh, If you can uh, understand that, something sort of amazes me about this mystery. 
The thing that amazes me most about childbirth and labor and watching your wife go through that is how any woman would be willing to give birth more than once. If God had given that charge to men, every man would have had one child, and most men would have, would have told how painful it was, and the rest of them would be like, no, nah, I'm good. All right, you can take the be fruitful, multiply stuff out. That's not going to happen, right? Um, how in the world would anyone want to give birth more than once? If you've ever seen this, women, if you've experienced it, it's unfathomable that you would ever want to do that more than one time. The pain of the contraction leading to the pain of delivery is some of the worst pains that humans ever experience. So why in the world are women willing to do something like that more than once? Ladies, I'm, I'm sure you can answer the question, can't you? It's because that sorrow, that pain is turned into joy. The very moment you hear the cry of that baby, the very moment you see that face of, of the child and you want to argue about which one that, that, that little baby looks like, the minute you get to hold that baby in your arms, that sorrow is turned immediately into joy. And then they learn to talk. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but I think this is, this is wonderful because that quote by J.C. Ryle, when, when he talks about our longing to see our Savior, see, friends, in, in a really real sense, right now, our Father is the Lord Jesus, right? He is, he is the one who cares for us. He is our Lord. But it's almost as if he's speaking to us from outside the womb. That he's communicating through us through a glass darkly. And I remember thinking about how I wanted to make sure that my kids knew my voice. And I remember how many times Miss Amy would say, little Addie or Emmett were jumping up and down during the sermon. And I said, well, they may be Pentecostal. We may have a problem with that. But I just remember speaking to them each night and feeling them touch and loving them from that place. And yet, from the inside, I can imagine that there's, there's a love brewing there as well. There's a connection to know who our Father is. But that love became enacted, it became consummated when I got to see my children face to face. When they got to understand who their data is, what he looks like, which was my children's kind of scary, uh, but to understand who he is and to see the love I have for them, to be able to hold them each day, to comfort them, to teach them. It's amazing. And I consider that. Friends, right now, our Father, we get to speak to him. We get to talk to him. We get to experience the hope of redemption every day, but it's almost as if we're doing it through a womb. And one day, the glorious promise is that we will get to encounter this love face to face that we'll get to see him for all eternity and we will have that stamped approval to know who our father is and that he loves us tremendously because we'll be able to experience it what a glorious glorious promise what a loving father and I don't know about you I I can't wait until that day I can't wait until the day where I get to see my heavenly father to see his scars to see what he had accomplished, his redemption. And knowing my unworthiness of it all, oh friends, we've got to get our minds right when it comes to death. For the Christian, it can be a very beautiful thing. It is a very beautiful thing. There may be sorrow for us, we know, 
Oh, but think about the wonderful, wonderful joy that loved one who has gone to the Father is experiencing. Oh, he's so great, friends. This leads us here to the paradox. Finally, we have the paradox, and and we do have something of a paradox here, because even though we explain this a little bit, Jesus says that our grief is going to be turned into joy. And I want you to notice something here. I want you to look at what it says, okay? Jesus doesn't say that your grief will be replaced by joy. That's not what he says. Nor does he say that your joy will overshadow your grief. Rather, what he says is that your grief will be turned into joy. That sounds a little bit odd, but this is the way God works. He does what is otherwise impossible in the eyes of the world. He turns something as terrible, as heartbreaking as grief of heart and transforms it into joy of heart. Friends, only he can do this, by the way. Consider the way James sheds light on this concept for us in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How can he say that? How can he say that? It's a paradox. How can he say that because the grief that comes along with trials is used by God to become a source of joy? The grief of trials is used by God to bring about a glorious transformation in all of us. And friends, that's something to be happy about. It's something to be joyous over. Given the context of our passage this morning, we we do well to consider this paradox in light of the cross. Think about this truth in light of the cross. When, When Jesus died upon the cross, the grief of the cross didn't go away. It didn't all of a sudden just fall to the wayside. It wasn't replaced or forgotten to make room for nicer feelings. Rather, the grief of the cross actually is turned into a source of joy. That is why it is said of Jesus that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was a source of grief, but that grief was turned into a source of joy. Think about this. The most grievous event in all of history has to be the crucifixion of Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be. There could be no event in history more sorrowful than the innocent, sinless God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only being crucified, but also suffering on the cross the eternal wrath of God. The one who knew no sin became for us sin so that he might suffer God's wrath in our stead. Can you think of a more grievous occasion? But as as sorrowful as that event was, it is at the same time the source of the greatest joy we could ever know because by it we have been redeemed. See, the grief of death is turned into the joy of eternal life. We see this transformation taking place in the lives of uh, the two Marys who went to see the body of Jesus at the grave. We read from it earlier. They go to the grave and they're met there by the angel. It says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he is risen just as he said, come see the place where he's lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee 
There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce makes an interesting comment on this subject. He says, before the resurrection, the death of Christ appeared to be a total tragedy. It was meaningless to disciples because they did not understand that this was God's atonement for the sin of the world. It was only for them the death of one they deeply loved. But when Jesus rose from the dead, they understood that the cross was not a tragedy, but a triumph. Did you ever notice as you read the New Testament that the cross is never referred to in a tone of sorrow? It is true that when the disciples tell about their own feelings between the three days of the crucifixion and resurrection, as they do in the Gospels, they reflect it in a historical way that they have sorrow then. But afterward, whenever they wrote about the cross, they spoke of it not as a cause of sorrow, but a cause for joy. Paul even speaks of it as his glory, and so should we. Friends, the thing to keep in mind is the fact that the resurrection is the thing that transforms that sorrow into joy. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there is no joy, nor can there be any joy. The joy of our salvation is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. Now, I want to conclude all this with with three tiny points of application. I want us to look at these points of application and I want to, I'm sure there's, there's been many things you can apply already for the sermon today, but I want to give you three particular things that I think we can apply and how this text can shine light in our lives. Friends, first, we've been given a joy that Jesus says cannot be taken away. We have been given a joy that cannot be taken away. That's tremendous news. No storm, no panic. No loss of earthly possessions can take away the joy of Christ. That's tremendous news. Verse 22 says it. It says, um, therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. And while it's true that no one can take our joy from us, that doesn't mean that there won't be times where we feel like we have a lack of joy in our hearts. King David mentioned in Psalm 51 when he cried to the Lord to restore him of the joy of his salvation, right? We learn from that it's possible for us to be so caught up or affected by our own sin that we come to a sense of a lack of joy in our lives over our salvation. Friends, if you're deficient in this area, if you wrestle with this, then the thing for you to do is quite simple. Go before the Lord and examine your heart. Go before the Lord and ask him to search your heart and reveal those areas that need to be addressed so you may know the joy of our salvation. Friends, listen to me. You can't be filled with anxiety. You can't be filled with worry and still have joy. Choose joy. I guarantee you it's the easier path. It's the most God-glorifying, God-honoring path. It doesn't mean that we will always choose joy. I'm not coming from a place of telling you that I always choose joy and don't sometimes choose anxiety or worry or fretting. But as having gone through both, I can tell you, 
Why wouldn't we choose joy? Which sounds better to you? Joy or anxiety? Joy or worry? (laughs) Joy. Choose joy. It cannot be taken away from you. We just need to begin to experience it. That's the first point of application. The second point is this. The sorrows of this life are pregnant with potential joy. The sorrows, the griefs of this life, they are pregnant with potential joy. Living in Christ, we live lives filled with his blessings and mercies, don't we? The same one who turns the greatest grief into the greatest joy can also turn our lesser griefs into praises of joy. The grief of Abraham and Sarah over not having children for the majority of their lives was turned to an occasion of the blessing of the Lord. There's joy. The grief at the grave of Lazarus was turned into an occasion for joy in his resurrection. That was something God has changed. He turned grief into joy. Likewise, in your life, the heartache, the illness, the troubles, the difficulties that are causing you, such grief today may by God's mercy and grace become a cause for joy tomorrow. It's possible, friends. As we're told in the psalm, weeping may last through the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. If you belong to Jesus, that is a promise that you can hold on to If not in this life, then in the next life. Because it will be then, in an ultimate sense, that every single grief we have ever known or faced in this life will be turned into a cause for joy. It's a reason the Apostle Paul can put it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And friends, if you've read the biography of Paul... He suffered some pretty amazing things as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. But Paul looks upon all of that and says, it's but light and momentary in comparison with what awaits me. In comparison to what's ahead, this is nothing. Church family, life on this side of God's glory is short. Some might be saddened by the fact that life is so short, but that shortness of life is also a reason to be joyful. It means our afflictions and our troubles in this life will be turned into joy that much quicker. Church, in in just a little while, our every single grief will be turned into joy. That is good news. But... For those who continue to reject the loving grace of our Savior, it also means bad news. Because for them, it's only a little while before their temporal joy will be turned into eternal grief. If you're outside of Christ today, this life, this joy can be found in in Jesus Christ. And it's offered to you this very morning. Which would you prefer? The temporal and the counterfeit joy of sin or the eternal joy, the eternal genuine joy of salvation. All you have to do is call out to Jesus this morning. You can know this joy of salvation. Lastly, third point of application. This is brief. I want to say this. I hope you understand this. I'm not not trying to diminish grief in any way, shape, or form, but I want you to hear this. There is something 
at least in the way I give an account to God has worked in my life, there is something far sweeter about experiencing joy after grief than having never experiencing grief and knowing only joy. Let me say that again. There is something far sweeter about experiencing joy after grief than having never experienced grief and knowing only joy. I think some of you know what I, I mean by that. It, it's sort of like our conversion, if you think about it in that way. Having been converted and knowing the darkness from which we come, it certainly makes the light that much more glorious, doesn't it? Knowing that we were dead, knowing that we were on our way to hell, only to been raised to life by God and, and not just made alive, but to receive his riches, the riches of his grace, to receive the internal inheritance that is imperishable and reserved in heaven for us. To receive open access in a loving relationship with God himself, to have come from sin and death to such a privileged state is truly the most amazing rags to riches story we will ever know it's a beautiful thing and in some ways yet it would have been certainly better to never know grief we can appreciate that but having known grief boy don't we appreciate the joy all that much more that's what's going to make heaven so wonderful friends we we will remember our griefs because Jesus will have the marks of his physical body for all eternity. But we won't be grieving for that. It'll be a cause for joy because that is the means. That is the means that God has brought about to make it possible to live eternally with him. So for this, it ought to stir in our hearts gratitude. We ought to be grateful God promises to turn our grief into joy. And, and gratitude, as we know, is shown how? It's shown by our love to God. And church family, our love to God is shown how? Shown by our obedience to his word. So my prayer for all of this is that God would grant us his grace to be faithful in doing what we know we ought to do. Friends, are you walking through a time of grief right now? Rest upon the promise of Christ. He will turn it into joy. And that is a reason for you even today to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And choose joy. Choose joy. I've said this often. Two things, we'll close. First, the worst thing that can ever happen to you is that you'd be ushered into an eternity filled with joy with Christ forever. That's a pretty good deal. If we can all agree that death is the worst, and I think those of us who experience death and loved ones, we can say that it is, to know that Jesus has taken the sting of death and that now the worst thing that can happen for a Christian is to be ushered into an eternal happiness and joy in the presence of our Savior, that's good news. And secondly, let us remember this. When we're walking through this sorrow and grief today, there will be a point when we get to heaven, I know, that when we look at the Lord Jesus and we encounter and experience this joy, we'll look back on all of our suffering, all of our grief, and, and many of us have walked through tremendous amounts of sorrow in this world. We'll look back at all of it and say, Lord Jesus, that was all? That's all I had to go through to get here? 
that was it? He's just that good, friends. He's just that worth it. So remember this when we're walking through these times of grief. There will be a point where we will say, that was light. Jesus, that was, that was light and momentary compared to this glory of being in your presence. Oh, I pray that we'd be filled with hope and gratitude, loving our Savior and obeying him in his word because of this. Won't you stand as we join our hearts together in prayer? Father, we've heard tremendous promises in your word today. Lord, I just think everyone in here, Lord, has walked through some grief. Lord, as, as being able to be a, a shepherd here, be able to experience grief together with many of Lord, this flock, I, I know that there's grief. I know that there's sorrow. But Lord, thank you for reminding us that, that that sorrow and that grief, it doesn't define us. You transforming that sorrow and grief into joy and us holding on. Lord, it's not always pretty. We, we take our shots. Lord, we, we slug on through many days fighting for joy, but we know that if we're found in you, that joy cannot be taken away, and, and the joy of the Lord defines us. Lord, we've heard it said from, from many people who are not walking with Christ that seeing a Christian walk through grief and still choosing joy is one of the greatest testimonies to your work we can have. Lord, we know it's all of you. So, so this is what we do, Father, is we simply ask for your help to trust you that you'll work it. For those of us who are walking through grief or sorrow right now, and maybe we feel we're just doing a, a terrible job, maybe we just feel like we're not choosing joy, Lord, would you help us to trust you that you will turn our grief into joy? Because it's what your word says, it's what your word promises for the believer. Lord, we thank you that you're trustworthy. We thank you that, Lord, you who began a good work in us will complete it in the day of salvation. And Lord, part of that saving work is turning the griefs and sorrows into this life into an everlasting joy in Christ. Oh, Lord. I pray our hearts would overflow with the gratitude of thanksgiving today. And I pray that that would motivate us to have such affection for you, such love for you, that we would desire ever more to be obedient to your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.